Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. I'm back with a new episode this week. This is the second part of Far From the Matting Crowd. And today I have a special guest, a friend of mine, Julia Seymour. Julia lives in Athens, Georgia with her husband and two young daughters. Her favorite activities are spending time with family and friends and reading. She is also passionate about growing in virtue and religion, problem solving, home education, home economics, and home life. I am fortunate to know Julia in real life. She's in one of my book clubs and she is so insightful and thoughtful in all that she says whenever we meet together. I always look forward to Julia being there and hearing what she has to say about our readings. I loved our conversation on Far From the Matting Crowd. We are both big fans of this book, and I cannot wait for you to hear our chat today. Julia, thanks so much for being here today. How did you first hear about Far From the Matting Crowd and what drew you in about the story? I first saw the movie. Okay. I saw the trailer in theaters, and then I ended up watching the movie later on. We read Thomas Hardy's Return of the Native in high school, so that's how I was familiar with him. But Far From the Madding Crowd for me started with the movie, and a few years later I read the book and was just blown away by how much more it was. It was so much richer. So did you see the one with Carrie Mulligan? Is that the movie that you saw? Yes. So I love that movie. And so interesting story how you saw a movie first and then you read the book later. I saw a miniseries in, I think it was the 90s. And I later was at a place called the Brie Fellowships in Switzerland. It was around 2003. And I would have tea with one of the founder's daughters. And I talked about loving Far From the Madding Crowd. And she pulled it off her shelf and handed it to me because our teas were more of a literary tea. And handed it to me and said, read it. And when you come back next week, we'll discuss it. So we had these like a few weeks of discussing Far From the Madding Crowd. And I found a similar thing. of I loved the miniseries, which goes into a little bit more depth than the movie. But when I read the book, I loved it even more. Which another interesting thing when I read the book this time, I thought, did I really read this book before? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was in my early 20s when I first read it. Mm. And so that's about 20 years ago. And I was like, how did I read this and comprehend this as, as well? Because I'm having a hard time now as in 20 years later, really falling along with some of the prose. So I know I did, but I don't know. Having children does things to your brain. <laughs> so, But it is such a good book and I, I just love it so much. As we are talking about now, this is a reread for us both and a favorite book for us. This is my second time to read it, Julia, and you're up to three readings now. I had a little fear that I wouldn't love it as much as I did on the first reading, even though I'm not sure how I got through the first time, but I loved it even more. Did you have that same fear? And how has your love of the book changed over your many readings? And how did the book become richer for you? 
So the first time I read it, I read it for me, I think, in the middle of the night when I was pregnant and I couldn't sleep. And it was so great that I recommended it to my husband and we listened to the audiobook together. That was my second read of it. I count the audiobook listening yes. as a read. And I didn't have that fear. I was excited to share the book with him. Mm. And the first time I read it, it was very much a romance for me. But the second time when I was listening to it with my husband, it all the comedic scenes popped out because we could laugh out loud at them together. And we'd laugh and have to pause it and go back and re-listen to some of these really funny dialogues that Thomas Hardy writes. In that second read too, though, I was struck by Hardy's wisdom and how much he understands people and their struggles and good and evil. The third time for this book club, I'll be honest, Part of the reason I joined the book club was because I knew y'all were going to read this book. And it's one of my favorite books. So I was like, oh, I wanted to discuss this book so much with other people that uh, I was super happy to read it again. And the third time, I was really rooting for Thomas Hardy. I was struck by his mastery. And he's very well-rounded as an author. It strikes me as a perfect book. It has good dialogue, good descriptions, good characters, like everything. He's strong at everything. For me, it's a perfect book. So I could read it over and over again. Sometimes it's a struggle to know if I want to start a new book or go back and read my favorites. <laughs> I was talking to Julia right before we recorded and told her after I came home yesterday from the book club that I put Far From the Matting Crowd on the shelf and I just wasn't ready to let it go because I loved it so much this time around. Julia, when you're talking about joining the book club, I have two other like follow-up questions real quickly. So how much of a time lapse was there between your first read and your read with your husband? And then I'll give you a second for that. And then I want to ask you another question. I think it was a year and a half, maybe. Yeah. So my other question is, I find this sometimes in the book club, which I love so much. Do you ever find that a book that you love so much, and I don't know if you have this fear this time with Far From the Matting Crowd, that you are going to have to prepare yourself in case someone didn't love the book. And it's not even as much as you, but someone who like hated the book and wanted to just voice their displeasure in the meeting. Did you have a little bit of that fear? Because last year, one of the books I chose was Brideshead Revisited. And I have found out since then, some people enjoyed it and others never want to read it again. So I feel a little protective of the books I love. So I don't know if you had a little bit of that fear coming in to book group with this book. I don't think I thought that far ahead. And I was a little bit prepared because in December when we read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, I think no novel of that length has ever resonated with me as deeply as that novel. And everybody else was like, eh, it was okay. I didn't finish it. That <laughs> so. <was me. laughs> <laughs> yes. So we read this that book in book club and Julia loved it. And she has such wonderful, insightful things to say. And I was sitting there thinking, I really wish I had, had finished the book. But we were also reading Children of Men for my church's book club. And that book was so much of a downer. It's a worthy read, but it was so much of a downer that I was like, I can't do two of these in the same month. <laughs> so, but like I said, I, that is wonderful. I Get, tend to get my feelings hurt because I'm so protective <laughs> of these books and it's so ridiculous. I'm working on it. I am. 
Julia, we both share a love of the character Gabriel Oak. He's steady and strong and such a man of character and integrity. I also have personally a lot of sympathy for Bathsheba. I can see some of her qualities in myself. Who are some of the most intriguing characters for you in Far From the Matting Crowd and why? When I watched the movie and the first time I read the book, Gabriel Oak struck me as so perfect. I thought Bathsheba didn't deserve him and his love. As I've read it a few more times, I've grown in my understanding of Gabriel Oak and that he's a practical man and she has so many practical strengths. And so it's interesting rereading the book and understanding someone differently that he also isn't perfect or rather she isn't so imperfect. The character that really jumped out at me at this last time I read it was Sergeant Troy. Francis Troy really jumped out at me and all the descriptions of him because I was so wrapped up in Gabriel and Bathsheba in earlier readings that I don't know if I just wasn't paying as much attention. But all the long passages of prose that Hardy uses to describe Sergeant Troy are amazing. He's this myopic character, short-sighted, a very emotional, very selfish, but he's not so overtly selfish that people are turned off by it immediately because he's also clever and cunning and very handsome. And, and he has charming. this great mustache and this really beautiful red uniform. And so this time around, I was a lot more interested in him as a as a realistic character, the kind of person that we see in the world. So it's interesting that you said that because I had that same reaction reading it this time, especially the scene where he first meets Bathsheba. And he's just laying the flattery on thick. And it was written so perfectly that because I have been in situations like that where you you know this guy is not a good character, but he's so charming and he says the things you want to hear so well that you just fall under the spell and you lose all sense. So I'm so glad that you brought that out because I reading that, I was like, I don't even know. I might have gone back and reread that passage because it just really stood out to me so much. And I, I think I brought it up in book club and I don't know. The reaction was as sympathetic as we <laughs> as we have. But again, it's that I think a difference between those who have read it for the first time and reading it again in just gleaning more and more from it and not to disparage anyone in my book club because they are wonderful dear friends and so intelligent i just love those ladies so just an observation between reading it multiple times and then just a, the first time because you do get caught up in the romance in the first the first reading <laughs> thomas hardy was a poet and he has a beautiful command of language in the novel his betrayal of the countryside and farming life are picturesque and poetic without whitewashing the difficulties of that life. Julia, you are also a poet. How does Hardy's background of poetry especially feature in the book? I'm so interested in this answer. And after reading Far From the Matting Crowd, I found myself looking up books of Thomas Hardy's poetry. I haven't bought any yet, but it is on my radar to start collecting those. So Thomas Hardy thought of himself as a poet, and he was a poet. But I think his novels came, they were published earlier than his poetry. From my understanding of his biography, which is very minimal and internet-based, uh, <laughs> a lot of the poetry came after the death of his first wife, Emma, after, I think, 40 years of marriage. Well, Far From the Madding Crowd was a serialized work that came out, I think, in the 
first few years of their marriage. So the poetry was in the background and I've read some of it. It's very emo. And I, I, at least all that I've read of it, and largely because it was inspired by the death of his wife at the beginning of his poetic career um, as a published poet, I think in some ways his poetry features in his prose just in the mastery he has around the language. And so I'm just going to talk about poetry in general, how he does that. I think poets take feelings and thoughts and these real things but they might be invisible things and they express it through imagery. And so you see a very, very rich use of imagery all throughout this novel. So he doesn't say Bathsheba was sad. He says she wanders around outside and gets lost in a swamp. Like mm-hmm. it, He provides this imagery in order to explain a feeling. And you see that over and over again. And not all novelists do that and not all need to. They can just say the feeling or leave it at the dialogue. Uh, but he has a very rich use of imagery throughout. I'm trying to think of another example. Oh, so he doesn't say Gabriel gets wet in the rain. He says, the, and this is me paraphrasing, the dyes were running off of his clothes and down the ladder into a puddle. He uses this rich imagery. And then the thing that really jumped out at me that struck me as poetic when I heard the book as an audiobook, poets play with the sound of the language. It has to have a good mouthfeel. And when you're reading silently you sometimes miss it when we were listening to the audiobook this sentence jumped out at me and struck me as poetic because of the way he plays with sound so i'll read the full sentence and then i'll tell you which part of the sentence jumps out so this is the quote there was no perceptible motion in the air not a visible drop of water fell upon a leaf of the beeches birches and firs composing the wood on either side the part of that sentence that jumps out at me is leaf of the beeches birches and firs What's happening there is you have the internal rhyme, the leaf of the beeches, and then birches and firs have the internal rhyme. And you also have beeches and birches sound very similar. So he's playing with the sounds there. And after I heard that, I would just say beeches, birches, and firs to myself to prepare myself to write poetry sometimes, I think, just to get into that, that place of alliteration, internal rhyme. That's what jumped out at me. And the other line that jumped out at me was actually not his original line. It was a quote from Keats that he throws in. As though a rose should shut and be a bud again. And that imagery, I'm in love with it. I think he used it better than Keats did. Yeah, so it comes from John Keats' poem, The Eve of St. Agnes. And I'm not a huge fan of that poem. And that one line is so lovely. And Thomas Hardy uses it in a different context. And it expresses the feeling Thomas Hardy is going for so beautifully. So I've also meditated on that line of the, as though a rose should shut and be a bud again, about beauty in its outward way versus this sort of youthful innocence. Oh, and one one other thing. <laughs> I think poets also play with connotations. So there's what the word means, but also all the feelings that go around it. There's word association. So sometimes poets will pick a word not because of what it means, but because of the other words that it calls to mind. And you see this with the names that Thomas Hardy chose for all of his characters. So Gabriel Oak is like an angel. So he gets the name Gabriel. Bathsheba is this beautiful stolen bride, temptress, all that stuff that goes with Bathsheba. Francis Troy. Troy is the ancient city destroyed in a war over a stolen bride. Boldwood is a rigid man. Fanny Robin is flighty and coming in and out of the scene. So he's he's picking these words and 
he's so intentional with his word choice. That's where I think the poet in him is showing up throughout the novel. Julia brought that up yesterday in the book club about how he chooses names. And I just loved that so much. I really appreciate her bringing that out. And I appreciate also you saying the difference of listening to it versus reading it. And I I think that makes a really good case that audiobooks are very important and they should not be dismissed. I missed that. And I, when you were reading that aloud, I, I loved that. It, it was music to my ears. So thank you so much for that insight. I appreciate it so much. Julia, this isn't a Christian novel, but it is still structured a little bit around the liturgical year. I've talked about that in the last episode. But how is this story anchored in the remnant of a Christian world and, and being anchored around a church still? What makes it work so well with the agrarian life? When I read it, it jumped out to me that it was going around the seasons. Mm-hmm. And I think the liturgical seasons and the farming seasons go together. And part of that might just be because the Easter follows the lunar calendar, I think. And so does farming, maybe. Uh. <laughs> it <laughs> might. good to me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it, it's about seasons of life. And Thomas Hardy again, plays with these associations. So he'll put something that's not very Christmas in spirit on Christmas Eve. And it, it's jarring because you have the associations that go with it. And he'll describe Lady Day because to people in that time period, they, they would have known what time of year he was talking about. He didn't need to use the dates. And the way he describes the rest of the year, he's talking about what's going on on the the farms, they're, they're haymaking, they're washing sheep, they're shearing sheep, the ewes are lambing. That's when the mother sheep have their babies. So I, I really like that. I wonder how much of it was because it was serialized. And so sometimes he would try to mention the month that the chapter was coming out in. He would mention that month there. So you were reading it in real time, maybe, is a mm-hmm. theory I have. I'm not sure. And the other thing I really like about that, it going around the year, next time I read it, I'm going to write a timeline because I'm curious yeah. how the events fall into the year. I think it grounds it in reality. Sometimes it feels like a romance novel is a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And here they have this perspective that no matter what is going on in their lives, the world keeps turning. So even if they're suffering some romantic tragedy, well, you still have to make hay and you still have to shear the sheep and you still have to go to market. And there's this world and reality outside of themselves, which is, I think, a very Christian perspective too, that the world is not about you and your reality. Uh, There is this objective reality outside of yourself and time moves on. It is so interesting because there are a couple of things that happen within the book where one character, especially, he does not do the work that he needs to be doing and his farm almost goes into ruin. And he allows those emotions to overcome him where he is incapacitated. So I like what you said about how he was writing in real time. And my book, they would have the little notes in the back and it would say, this is what this day was or this feast was. And then the time of year. And I know that a couple of times in the, the chapters, would there would be a little, a little footnote that would say, this begins the October installment. And it would follow along with the season at the time. So I really appreciated that. What you said about that character not doing his job, I think when he loses touch with reality, he loses touch with farming. And it goes hand in hand because farming is 
that is reality for farmers. So yeah. he that character was not the soundest in his mind at that time. And so farming went with it. Hardy warns us of the danger of flattery and vanity in the novel so well, but without it suffering from being didactic. We've talked about that scene between Bathsheba and Troy. Instead, it is seamlessly woven into the story. How do you see this at play in the novel? I think the reason it feels so seamless is because he sets it up at the beginning and he lets it grow slowly. Mm. So it's not the sudden, the moment you notice she's vain, she's falling apart because of it. At the beginning, it's pretty funny. She's just a girl looking at herself in the mirror. The people who work for her talk about her behind her back and they mentioned, oh, the missus looks in a mirror when she puts her nightcap on because she cares that much about how she looks. And so at first it's funny and then he lets it have repercussions that get worse over time. And because it was already there, it feels very organic. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a really good moral story if you want to teach someone something instead of having a straw man where the moment you do something bad everything goes wrong immediately to let it grow very slowly let it be funny at the beginning let it be maybe even nice and exciting to show people like this is why it's so glamorous this is why it's so tempting to be vain and why some people feel that there's a reward because there might even be a reward in the short run there might be that attention that you really want it's in the long run that the consequences show up and so he this novel takes place over fairly long period of time for a romance novel i think a lot of romances focus just on you meet And then you get married and you don't get to see it slowed down the time before, the time after the marriage. And in this one, you actually get to see the consequences. And that's what makes it such a good story. Exactly. That was excellent. I want to go back to what you were saying about how it is appealing and the way that he portrays it. It does make it enticing. And I appreciate like like you were saying so much because that's something that we encounter in real life and it is so tempting to succumb to that person who has all that charm who's so charismatic that is so handsome and is able to say all the beautiful seductive words to us so i love that insight i just keep saying it and you've said it too he's he is so masterful with his craft and i don't know that i gave Thomas Hardy enough credit until this reread, because I would say to people, oh, I love Far From the Madding Crowd. It's his happiest novel, because I had seen, I've seen many series or movies of the other ones or heard about them. And, but I was just like, but it's the only one I'll ever read of his. And now I'm finding myself like, I need to eat my words, because now I really want to read his other work, even though there's some very tragic things. I, I wouldn't suggest maybe starting with other works But I have such an appreciation for his writing now that I did not before. Before I thought I just love the story because of the romance. And now I'm finding myself, no, this is someone who is very, very good and very skilled at the craft. So I appreciate you saying that, Julia. Let's talk about the different iterations of love in the book. It has everything from passionate love between Bathsheba and Troy and Fanny and Troy and disordered love in the case of Boldwood. So these might contain some spoilers. So skip ahead if if you need to. And mature love with Gabriel and Bathsheba. Hardy makes a case for the type of love that is built off of friendship 
in the case of Gabriel and Bathsheba. It's counter to the wild, passionate love championed in so much literature and media in our current day. Julia, what are your thoughts on what Hardy is saying about love in Far From the Matting Crowd? I think something that Hardy is saying here is that love is only as good as the lover. And so a person like Sergeant Troy, who can only see one step ahead. And I think somewhere else in the book, he characterizes him as someone who forgets yesterday, lives in today, doesn't care about tomorrow. He said it better than that. Read the book to find that quote. But the point is that that I'm making here is Sergeant Troy is he's selfish. And so he can't give real love Mm -hmm. and he's short sighted. And so as a husband, he takes to gambling immediately. And so Bathsheba reaps what she sows. She gets exactly what she signed up for. Sergeant Troy never marketed something he wasn't selling. And so you mentioned that it's counter to the wild, passionate love champion in so much literature. I think it's interesting if you cut the middle part of this book out and it's just where Bathsheba meets Sergeant Troy, it's almost like a romance on television nowadays where they meet and they have this super great meet cute. They're both extremely attractive. They have this banter and and she's this really independent career woman and she doesn't need a man until she finds a super handsome man and he sweeps her off her feet and everybody's like, this is crazy. This isn't you, Bathsheba. And she runs out in the middle of the night. It's literally, right? Thomas Hardy wrote for us this romance. And then instead of ending the book right there and then they lived happily ever after, almost immediately... We get to see the consequences of walking in blind, or maybe not blind, willfully blind to the character of her husband. So yeah, spoilers. (laughs) Gabriel, at the very beginning of the book, it mentions that he's halfway between Judas and John in his looks. He's very, very average looking. And his virtues grow on you over the course of the book. He's not as educated as Sergeant Shore or Bathsheba. You see it in the way he speaks. But he's super intelligent and he can do all these different things. And as the novel continues, you see how clever he is and wise and he has all the practical knowledge in the world. And he doesn't really care for that sort of book knowledge if he isn't going to apply it. And so at first, he's not rom-com material, I guess, because he's not super, super attractive. And this is where (laughs) I think it's hard to make movie adaptations because intentionally Thomas Hardy is pitting a very attractive man who's not a good man against an average looking man who's good in character. But when a movie's so short and just because of the way Hollywood works, everybody has to be attractive. So then you watch it and you don't really understand why she didn't go for Gabriel first, as opposed to when you read the book and you realize she has her priorities all wrong. And so love is as good as the lover, and you reap what you sow. That's what I think Thomas Hardy's saying. Two things, two spoilers. Julia, what are your thoughts on Fanny, poor Fanny, and also Boldwood? I want to talk just briefly about his obsessive love. At the end of the book, this is a spoiler. He becomes consumed with the thoughts of marrying Bathsheba, and he ends up in this very twisted sort of way of buying like a whole wardrobe of clothes for her and having her if she married him, what her married name would be, Bathsheba Boldwood, is is in all of these clothes. And it's just this picture of, of what happens when love goes wrong, when it, it descends into obsession. So I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that, but I'd also love to hear what you have to say about 
Fanny and Troy. And just there's this heartbreak over the character of Fanny. She meets a very tragic end. And you would hope that she would never have fallen for Troy's charm and seduction. She is not as feisty as Bathsheba. And I don't know that she can withstand his character as well as Bathsheba can. I don't know. I I just am am wondering if you have any further thoughts on Fanny. So Fanny is Bathsheba's youngest servant. Mm -hmm. And she's an orphan, I think, too. And Bold would pay for, he was her guardian or ward or something, helped pay for her upbringing. And uh, she meets a tragic end because of her relationship with Sergeant Troy. I think this might be a warning by Thomas Hardy about how dangerous it is to be in the world without advice mm-hmm. of people older than you or wiser than you or more objective than you. That's another thing. If she could have had an objective opinion outside of herself, outside of the charm, they probably would have told her this isn't a good idea. So with Fanny and Troy, what's interesting is Troy, because he is not a man of principle or planning or integrity, or <laughs> he's I he's a very interesting character and a very realistic character, mm-hmm. not a very good person. But the reason him and Fanny don't get married is also an accident. So he is such a victim to fate. Whatever happens to him, he just he gets billowed around by the winds of whatever's going on. And it's almost on a whim that he marries Bathsheba, but it was also on a whim that he didn't marry Fanny. So had there been just a little bit of a difference in directions or I don't know how to not spoil it, it was almost by chance that they didn't get married. Had she and him had their addresses right and showed up at the same spot at the same time, they would have gotten married, but they didn't. And so it's just interesting how that works out. With Boldwood, Boldwood's obsession with Bathsheba is fleshed out with time. And I think that's what a lot of romance novels lack. It's a very short period of time. And so at first, it's like, wow, he's so in love with her. I mean, for me, from the beginning, it was kind of weird. But <laughs> it it also falls into a lot of the romance ideas of there's this man and he's so rich and respectable and he's never been attracted to a woman before and she's the first woman that catches his eye and he looks up at her and his whole world changes and so it's again a setup for a romance and then Thomas Hardy lets it linger and you see what does it mean that there's a man who's literally never looked at a woman before he was because he was too busy looking down and he has not a lot of relationships in his life what happens if a man gets so fixated on the idea of woman instead of the woman herself. And so that's what you see with him, his obsession, even the way he basically tries to force marriage on Bathsheba. She can be in tears and he's like, yay, we're getting married. And there's this complete disconnect. But in in the short term, it might have looked romantic. But look, oh, he's this great guy. And he's he's never been attracted to another woman before. Isn't that such a a virtue on his part? When it wasn't, it was, in his case, not a virtue. So he's a fascinating character. When he proposes, he proposes multiple times to Bathsheba over the novel. The first time is right before Troy comes on the scene. And it was from that Valentine I mentioned last time that she sent. He's really pressuring her to marry him. And ultimately, she runs off with Troy. And something else happens in the story. I'm not going to give away because I want you to read it. But later on, he also proposes when it is... Well, I'll spoil just a little bit. It it seems as though Bathsheba is a widow. And 
So he proposes again and he keeps pressuring her and keeps pressuring her. And he says in this one part that is just very chilling when I read it, he told her that she needed to accept him because she owed it to him. So there's this, like Julia was saying, this very just twisted view of love. And it is fascinating to read it. Thomas Hardy does such a good job of just turning what we would assume would happen just slightly, just twisting it slightly. So we would see how it would play out in real life. Julia, Far From the Madding Crowd is Hardy's happiest novel that I am familiar with. I have said that earlier. And yet it has some tragedy in it. It is reminiscent of Shakespeare if he wrote pastoral prose. Why do the moments of tragedy work so well in the novel? And how is Hardy able to keep them from weighing the lighter moments down? The way I often describe this book, genre-wise, is that it's like four tragedies that are layered so perfectly that they reach a very satisfying ending. So he lets them kind of counteract each other. And that's just brilliant to me. I think he also has pacing just right. So if something's really sad, he'll give you the imagery and the feelings, and then he'll move on to another scene because the world goes on. And there's comedies sprinkled throughout too. So it doesn't get too, too heavy because of that. And something you mentioned earlier was about his other books. I resisted reading his other books because I heard other people describing plots and I thought, oh, that is way too, way too tragic. I'm not going to try to read the book. But after reading this book, I think I'll give them another try because knowing Hardy, there might be really great funny dialogue in between and there might be a lot of wisdom about the human condition and just a lot more happening than that one overarching plot that I've heard. So the tragedies I think also work really well here because they're just, it's, that's how I describe Thomas Hardy as a writer. He's a just author. You get what's coming. If you don't change directions, you'll end up where you're headed. So it's not the tragedy of, oh, this wonderful person gets very ill. It's not that kind of tragedy. It's more like Greek tragedy. You refuse to accept the facts. You refuse to do the right thing. And then your actions have the realistic consequences. But in his in this novel's case, he layers them so that at the end we get a for me a satisfying ending. I like the way that you describe that satisfying ending. That's the perfect the perfect way to say it. So you were mentioning the comedy in it. There's a good amount of comic relief in the novel, especially with the farmhands. It also reminded me of a Shakespeare play. Why do you think those comedic episodes are so crucial to novels with heavy parts? Sometimes when one reads a really sad novel, there's a feeling like, oh, I should put this down and go read some light reading. And Thomas Hardy says, don't worry about it. I'll throw in the light reading into the novel, right? So you, yes. don't, you don't have to step away. I know it's getting heavy. Here is a really, really funny scene. The scene that always jumps to mind for me, and it, it's not a spoiler. It's funny. You'll like it even more when you read it yourself, is when Caney Ball's running over the hill and he's eating at the same time. So he's eating and running, this boy. And then he starts choking and all the farmhands, their reaction is hilarious because I think the opening line from Gabriel is like, how many times have I told you not to run and eat at the same time? So he's such a master of comedy. And this is just how well-rounded of an author uh, Thomas Hardy is, is that he can also do comedy. I think that's why they're crucial. They create that levity so that they give the reader a break, an emotional break Mm -hmm. from the tragedy. But I also think it makes it more like real life because Mm -hmm. in real life, 
there are tragedies, but just because there are tragedies, it doesn't mean that spring doesn't come. It doesn't mean that you don't encounter some funny episode in between. And in the Christian life, if you do your part, you reach that satisfying ending, even if it's layers of tragedy. And in the moment, there's so much beauty. That's the other thing is his descriptions of nature that even in the worst, most tragic moments, there is so much beauty in creation that he meditates on and fleshes out with detail. That's excellent, Julia. I'm glad you pointed that out about how he says, you know, it's it's as if he's saying, don't worry about it. I've got the comedy covered because when this past December, when I was reading The Children of Men and A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, I was picking up another book <laughs> and reading it at the same time because I needed something a little bit happier. I needed just a little bit of comic relief. So yeah, I appreciate that of, of all of those things. It's so true. I do love the little asides and the back and forth with the different farmhands. He does a great job with the different personalities. There's one guy who's very sanctimonious and he uses him a lot within the book to give some comic relief. And I really appreciate that as well. So here's an example I just pulled up of his amazing comedy. This is him describing a young man. Said a young ma married man who, having no individuality worth mentioning, was known as Susan Tall's husband. So the book is filled with one-liners like that and just really funny dialogues as well. So just read it for the comedy too. Yeah. That was one of the lines that stood out to a lot of us in book club. And I think, I can't remember, were you the one who mentioned it maybe? So every time when we were reading the book, we would refer to this one character as, oh, he's just Susan Dahl's husband. Those little things. It was so funny, so well done. And just love it so much. Okay, before we switch gears to some lighthearted literary questions, do you have any favorite quotes from the book, Julia? I have two favorite quotes. And one of them is half of a very long sentence. So I'll just start at the second half of the sentence. But there was left to him a dignified calm he had never before known, and that indifference to fate which, though it often makes a villain of a man, is the basis of his sublimity when it does not. Um, to paraphrase, in, indifference to fate makes a wicked man into a villain and a good man sublime. That line jumped out at me the second time I was reading the novel because I had just gone through my own personal tragedy mm -hmm. and to hear that this abandonment to providence and this acceptance of fate mm -hmm. it makes a good person even better mm -hmm. because wanting your own will can be a real weakness mm -hmm. and he let go of that on the other hand if a person is a bad person and they stop caring, then there's nothing holding them back anymore. And that's what he means that indifference to fate can make a wicked man into a villain. So I love, love, love that line. My other favorite quote is, but wisdom lies in moderating mere impressions. And Gabriel endeavored to think little of this. So in this context, he, he fancies something, he notices something, but instead of dwelling on it, he just lets it go because it's only an impression. And this one jumped out at me recently because I think there's a tendency in myself or maybe in everyone, sometimes to create a narrative where you only have a little impression like, oh, that person did that. So therefore, and think about their psychology or their life, or for example, to hear a news clip or a news headline and to spin that into something much larger than it is. So this idea that wisdom lies in moderating mere impressions and just letting go of those things you don't know 
that line really jumped out at me. Lots of wisdom in this book. I love those quotes because I read them and I remember them, but I love that you brought those out and had that commentary. It was it was beautiful. Thank you for that. I hate to move on because I feel like we just need to let that sit for a minute, but I do want to finish up in order to be mindful of your time, Julia. I like to ask a quick round of literary questions at the end for fun. What is the best book you've read in the last year? The best book I've read in the last year, I'd say, is Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is nonfiction. It's kind of in the self-help genre. But novel-wise, it would be One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Which now I I really feel like I need to go back and read and and give it the time that it deserves. I want to also read Atomic Habits. You have mentioned that before, and I think it would help me. I'm not the best person with good habits. I'm great with bad habits, but not the best with good habits. Julia, what is your favorite book of all time? And you can always cheat and say multiple ones. (laughs) (laughs) Cheating. Yeah, it's right now it's kind of a tie between Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy and Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. That is such a good book. When I finished it, I had to just take a break and let it sit for a few months. I don't think I picked up fiction for a while. I wondered if I'd ever be able to read anything again or if I'd just be disappointed in everybody else, but I'm reading again. So that that book's great. Vanity Fair. Treat it like a TV show, not like okay. a movie. It's a very long book. My my runner-ups are One Day in Life of Indonesovich. <laughs> really resonates with me. It doesn't with everyone, but for me, what, what sticks out to everybody else is how cold it is and how hungry he is. To me, it's a novel about homesickness uh, and about how the, the homesick man is not the one who's always talking about home, but the one who tries so hard not to talk about it and it slips out of him every time he relaxes. So that's the context I read it out of. And then Adam Mickiewicz's Pantadosh, which I think in English is Lord Thaddeus, is this epic novel. And it's, again, has every... It has everything in it. It has a bear hunt. It has a mystery person. He has multi-generational romance, drama. It has a scene where they're just foraging for mushrooms. It has war. It's everywhere. And when I finished reading that book, I just, I closed it and I cried. It was so beautiful. But again, one that maybe only resonates with me because of my Polish heritage. And that's a great Polish work. So, I mean, it resonates with a lot of Polish people. (laughs) Okay, I've never heard of this, and now I I really want to read it because that sounds fascinating. What time period does it take place in? I think it would be Regency era, but they dress differently. (laughs) That's how I gauge historical time periods. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) That's exactly right. Maybe Napoleonic War. I'm sorry, my history is not great yet. That's okay, because I have a background in clothing, and I was a seamstress and, and studied fashion merchandising in school, and also a little bit of costume history or history of clothing. So I judge things by that, too. Like, what are they wearing? Okay, I can tell the time period by what they're wearing. Like, bustles, I know when that is, and the, the Regency era. So yeah, I love that, Julia. Tell me the name of that one again. Did you read it in Polish, or did you? I read it in English. Okay. I'd have to send you one of the translations. Oh, Sir Thaddeus. Okay. So where does one find this? Just anywhere to wait to read? <laughs> I'll send you a okay. link to okay. a, a good translation. Okay. Because I'm not sure how many translations are out That's there. That's so true. So a book I'm trying to get Julia to read is Kristen Lavern's daughter. Talk about it all the time. But you have to be 
very careful with the translation you read because one of them that was done shortly after the book was written leaves a lot of stuff out and then they add a lot of very formal language in it. So it is important, the translation that you read. Um, so I'll say the the title in English I'm seeing here is Sir Thaddeus or the Last Foray in Lithuania, a nobility's tale of the years 1811 through 1812 in 12 books of verse <laughs> is the long title. So how long is this book, Julia? Is it a big, big thick book? I think it looks bigger than it is okay. because the copy I have has Polish on one side and English on the okay. other side. So it's half as big as it looks. Okay. I'm not sure how long it is. Well, Kristen Lovren's Daughter is a trilogy, but the copy I have is just one volume and it's over a thousand pages, but you can't help but just be so sucked into the story that you can't stop reading it. It's so good. Julia, what is a book you haven't read, but have always meant to read? My book always, as I share every single time, is Lord of the Rings, and I will get to it at some point. I also want to read Brothers Karamazov, which I have said also before. So some point, some point. I may just listen to Lord of the Rings. It might just be a little bit of an easier way for me to get to it. I haven't read every page of the Bible, so I'd like to do that at some point. Yeah, I know. There's a few years ago that I went through and I read, I think I've only done it once all the way through. But yeah, there are some parts that are just, Judges has always been hard for me. There's just a lot of a lot of hard things within it, but it, it's worth doing. I think I have so much of a a better appreciation now than when I was a young girl when I go back and I read it, especially the Old Testament because of the Sunday school lessons tended to sanitize <laughs> the stories of these men and women. And when you go back and you read it, you're like, oh my goodness. And yet with everything that they did in their lives and as imperfect as these people were and as much horror that they create with some of their decisions, yet God chooses them and, and uses them and redeems them. And I am always struck by that as I, I go back and read, especially the Old Testament. Julia, if you could invite any author or literary character to dinner, who would it be? Let's say three to five people or characters. You can always cheat. And what would you serve? I put way too much thought in this. <laughs> okay, my party list would be Ray Bradbury, mm. Dante, mm. William Makepeace Thackeray, Megan O'Giblin, who is a contemporary essayist, and Mary Reed Newland, who wrote parenting books in the 40s and 50s, I think. And I would serve Swedish meatballs and potatoes and cucumber salad. And we'd have cheesecake and so much charcuterie, so much. <laughs> and we just we just graze forever <laughs> is the plan. The reason behind that being I have no idea what anybody likes to eat except that Ray Bradbury in an interview mentioned Swedish meatballs. So at least he'd be happy. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I meant to. Okay. So I want to go back to Vanity Fair for just a second. I have never read it. I have watched some subpar movies and mini series. Have you watched any of the movies? Is the book better? Please say. <laughs> I've never watched any of them. I did look at their plots on Wikipedia just to see if they even yeah. tried to compare. I think it's one that's really hard to adapt because mm -hmm. the book spans, I think, 20 years. Okay. But you're not going to get actors to do that, I don't think. So they end up cutting the stories short or ending them early or giving them very different endings in order to end them while everyone's still attractive. It's 
<laughs> so based on what I've read on Wikipedia, I do think the book is the way to go. Yeah, that gives me hope to try it again, because I think when I watched the movies, I was like, I don't really feel like, why do I want to watch this? But I'm learning just to put those trepidations aside and just just go with it, especially after misjudging Thomas Hardy. So maybe I will have to give that one a chance. Finally, Julia, do you have any book recommendations to share? Yes. <laughs> William Makepeace Zachary's Vanity Fair, True Friendship by Dr. John Cuddeback is a very, very short book about what friendship is, how to make friends. And it's it's beautiful. It's very short, very practical, very clear. He's a philosopher at Christendom. Mm-hmm. And I also, I closed the book and I cried at the end, which is what I do when I really like a book. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that with many books. And uh, Secrets from Heaven by Father Sebastian Walsh. It, he breaks down a lot of parables in ways mm-hmm. you might not have heard before. So those three books. So Juliet. You cry when you close a book. <laughs> I will close a book. I used to. I do it sometimes still. I will close the book and I hold it to my heart for a minute. And I'm like, <laughs> it has just been a part of me for like weeks or months and I just can't let it go yet. <laughs> I did that. I don't know if you've ever read any of Dorothy Sayers. I love her detective series so much. I love mysteries and I have a huge crush on her main character in it. So it was like one of the novels. It was like something that had been brewing for for many of of the books finally happens. And I was just so excited at the end. I just had to hold it to my heart. I like (laughs) I'd stayed up to like two o'clock in the morning one night reading it. Like I could like my eyes started to dry out. I could like I had to finally close the book because I couldn't see anymore. So that's what that's what I do. So you're not alone, Julia. There are all sorts of quirks when you finish a book. (laughs) Oh, but I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Julia is new to our book club, but when she first came, I was like, oh my goodness, she is so bright and she has such beautiful insight to the poetry that we read. We always have a poetry selection. So yes, we are always just so excited when Julia comes because we know that we're going to hear such wonderful, thoughtful things from her. So Julia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. So if you have a book suggestion, if you just want to have a little bookish conversation, you can email me at bethatawellreadlife.com. I also have a website that's still in the works. You can also find me there. It's awellreadlife.com. And I'm also on Instagram at wellreadbeth. Enjoy your week and cozying up with a good book and a cup of warm tea. Until next time.